Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will, I, will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his, order, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The word of the Lord. If you weren't here with us last week, I explained that I have recently had knee surgery, and so for a few weeks we will have to uh, muddle through with a stool and a little bit of immobility. And so I'm sure it's a little distracting, and it's certainly for me, but we will, uh, we will work through it together. Today we're talking about one of the most difficult ideas, concepts, applications of the gospel story, which is the notion of forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that's very easy uh, to receive. We're often eager to receive it, at least many of us are. But it's often something that is much harder to dispense, to dispense in a real way. Uh, Rigsa is a a man I was reading about. In the late 1970s, uh, he um, he was growing up in Cambodia. He was 14, and he had worked for a number of years in the killing fields. And one day, as often happened in the killing fields, the Khmer Rouge came, and they gathered up all of the men of the village and proceeded to kill them with hoes and machetes. Uh, Rixa was in this group and, and fell down. He was, he was momentarily knocked unconscious, but he soon awoke, realizing that he had not been significantly wounded, though his father and his brother uh, were dead. He was able to crawl into the grass while the Khmer Rouge went and rounded up the women 
of the village, and he, he lost the rest of his family. Uh, all told, that day, Rikso would lose 13 members of his family. He spent the next uh, couple of weeks making his way through the jungle, uh, surviving on what he could find and sleeping in trees uh, to avoid tigers at night, until he eventually made it to Thailand, where he would exist in a uh, squalid refugee camp for five more years before eventually being granted refugee status in Canada. Now, Riksa, when he tells a story, he says, um, I was consumed with one thing in that entire journey. And the thing that I was consumed with was planning and plotting the murder of everyone who had just exterminated my entire village. Now, that is a harsh story, but it's not a story that's distance from things that are happening every day in our world. What are we supposed to say to Riksa about forgiveness? Right? Just, just forgive, Riksa. Let's say for a moment that Riksa became a Christian and are we just supposed to say, well, now you love Jesus and he loved you and he forgave your sin, so now you're supposed to forgive. And doesn't it sound just a little bit empty? A little bit shallow? depending on the amount of pain and suffering that someone has experienced at the hand of other people. What is forgiveness, and how do we really extend it? I don't know what it's like in your house, but forgiveness in my house uh, <laughs> goes, goes like this. Uh, my kids know the routine. Child one does something to child two that's unkind or mean, that's sin. So uh, child one has to say that they're sorry, they have to ask child two how it made them feel. Child two says, this is how it made me feel. Child one says, okay, uh, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? Uh, child two says yes. And quite literally, this, this is what it, what it, as soon as they know that they're in trouble, and we're going to go down this road, it sounds uh, like this. Um, I'm sorry, how did you make it feel? Sad. Okay, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Yes. That, uh, that's how it plays out, Over, and that's okay, right? Form has to precede substance. We have to learn right uh, behavior and right actions and, and right ways of thinking before our heart necessarily follows. But isn't that kind of a description of how often we engage in forgiveness? Because what also happens in my house is it may be just 10 minutes later, it may be a day later, it may be six months later, but inevitably you hear, but you did this to me. Right? They, the child remembers. It hasn't been forgiven. It becomes a pool noodle in their hand, which they start beating the other child with. Right? You've done this to me, so I get to do whatever I want to do to you. It's my right now to act that way towards you. So we realize that in one sense, forgiveness can so easily be just a word. It can be something that just comes out of our mouth, but what Jesus is after, as he says at the end of the parable, is the notion of forgiving someone from our heart. What does that look like and what does that actually entail? It is no small thing, it is no easy thing, but it is so desperately important. And I don't take it lightly this morning because I know some of you have experienced enormous hurt and enormous pain, but hear me well, you need to forgive more than the person needs your forgiveness. Right? You need to forgive more than anybody needs your forgiveness. Now let, 
let me explain that as we unpack uh, the, the story and the parable together. The passage begins, uh, they're coming right off a, a situation in which they've talked about how do you deal with someone who's sitting, sinning but isn't repent? And so Jesus talks about discipline uh, for the church. And then uh, Peter asks, well, how many times are you supposed to forgive somebody? And he says, seven times. Right? And that's pr Peter probably said it kind of like that. right? Because seven times would have been considered over the top. Right? In Jewish tradition, we have several examples where you're a really gracious and righteous person if you forgive somebody three times. And here Peter is like, I'm just going to choose the number of perfection in Hebrew theology. What if I forgive somebody seven times? So he's, he's expecting that Jesus is going to be like, oh, yes, Peter, you get it. And, of course, what does Jesus say? No, no, it's 70 times seven times, which, which is so enormous it's almost ridiculous. Like, just think for a minute. Imagine somebody doing the same exact thing to you 70 times, seven times, and you forgiving them over and over and over again. Right? That would be, there's one word for that, and it's, it would be a beating. Right? Who could even have that kind of endurance to tolerate that kind of ridiculousness? And yet all of this, of course, is a metaphor for understanding our relationship to God and his forgiveness of us. And we realize, oh, you've done the same thing over and over again in your life way more than 70 times seven times. And God has continued to forgive you. Now this passage, it should ring a bell, or maybe not should is the right word, but perhaps it rings a bell for you. There is a place in the Old Testament where we've heard this very, what seems random, 70 times seven is out of the ordinary this has happened somewhere before. And indeed, if we go back to the very start of the biblical story in Genesis 4, uh, Cain kills Abel. And Cain holds, or God holds Cain responsible. And he says, I am going to make you a wanderer. That is your punishment. You will move from city to city. Cain says, I can't bear this punishment. It's too much for me. Somebody's going to kill me as I wander about. And God says, no, I'm going to put a mark on you. I will protect you. And if anyone touches Cain, vengeance on him will be seven times. Right? It's actually a little picture of the gospel. Is it not? In which Cain is held accountable for his sin, but he doesn't get what he deserves. God provides this protection for him so that he actually won't um, receive what is necessarily his due. So uh, this is what happens with Cain. And if you, if you skip just a couple of verses you actually move very swiftly through three or four generations. And suddenly a new character pops up who is Lamech. Lamech is Cain's great-great-great-grandson. And Lamech uh, boasts to his wives. Right? He's the first man recorded to take two wives. And he boasts to both of them, I've killed a man for wounding me. And if Cain's vengeance was seven times, my vengeance will be 70 times seven times will be 77-fold. Okay, this is where we've heard it before. But in the Old Testament, what it is, is it's Lamech's claim to arrogance, to pride, to say, if God has rendered justice to Cain seven times, then I will claim justice for myself 70 times seven times. And that becomes a picture of the kingdom of man, that we live by the desire to get our due, to exact justice from people. Not that we're very good at it. When Jesus comes on the scene and he says, no, my kingdom is going to be defined 
not by vengeance and justice in the sense that you get yours. It's going to be defined in the opposite fashion by forgiveness that is 70 times 7 times. And so even as we go into the parable, we have the picture of two kingdoms. A kingdom that's defined by man, by the, ear- the earliest um, people and God's creation going their own way and away from God, and Jesus showing up as God in the flesh and saying, no, this is what the kingdom of the triune God looks like. It's a, it's a kingdom of forgiveness. Okay? Well, what does that entail? How do we side with the kingdom of the Son rather than the kingdom of Lamech? Let's consider the parable. We're going to take it in two scenes, right? The first servant and then the second servant. So the first servant comes. uh, The king decides, hey, I've got to clear some debt. Let's gather everybody up. It's time to pay. He grabs servant number one. Servant number one can't pay and is about to be thrown into debtor's prison, which is where you sit until all your family, family and friends can gather up what's owed and and pay for your release. And he begs for mercy. Have patience with me. And it says that the king had pity on him. It's it's this notion that the the king identifies with his plight, and it decides to extend mercy to him. Now, this first slave owes the king 10,000 talents. That is an astronomical number. It's, uh, It's essentially fictitious. 10,000 is the largest number for which Greek even had a signifier. A talent was was the largest single amount of currency. Maybe in half a lifetime, you might hope to make one talent. So to say that that he owes the king 10,000 talents is kind of like saying he owes the king a billion zillion dollars. Right? It's an insane amount of money for which no one really would have had a, a grasp. Today it would have been like, he owes the king, I don't know, what comes after, quadrillion, like 50 quadrillion dollars. And you'd be like, oh, I can't understand a number like that. That's what's happening in the parable, which means that the amount owed is astronomical, that the king decides simply to forgive it, not to set up a payment plan, not to say we're going to work this out, but he's released from the debt. Because the debt is astronomical, the forgiveness is astronomical. That, of course, is the point that we so often underestimate our debt, and therefore we take lightly God's forgiveness of that debt. Do you remind yourself that you are an enemy of God? Do you remind yourself that you are so incredibly selfish that you would happily crucify the Son of God if it meant good for you because you believed that and you did that? That's what we're all guilty of. You know, I, I, I... I laughed. It wasn't a happy laugh. It was a sad laugh when we were singing Be Thou My Vision. Right? We're singing this beautiful song with these beautiful words about being captured by the vision of God and my mind wandered. And what do you think that I was thinking about? Me. Right? Out of, out of a week of what? In a given week, you have like 112 wake, wake hours. Out of 112 hours, we commit one hour and 15 minutes per week to gather as God's people and worship Him. And out of that one hour and 15 minutes out of 112 hours, I can't actually stay focused on God. I am consumed by my own selfishness. Right? How do, how do we underestimate that gross sin in our heart? 
Where's your, where's your barometer? Right? So often when we think about how am I doing, am I righteous or am I wicked, we look to our neighbor or we look to our friend and we say, yeah, I'm, pretty, I'm better than that person. I'm doing okay. How often do we look to Jesus, the perfection and model of what it means to actually be a human being who loves God and loves his neighbor? We look at that and we say, oh my goodness, I'm so far from that. There's much darkness in my heart. And I have been forgiven a great deal. I've been forgiven for actually crucifying his son. If, if, the, if my sin and my evil and my wickedness required the remedy of the death of the Son of God, then I would be foolish to underestimate it. I would be foolish to think that I haven't been forgiven a great debt. And so understanding this, that the debt is astronomical and the forgiveness is astronomical, you would think that the first servant would be forgiving. Right? That he would walk out and be like, I, I just hit pay dirt. Everybody's getting off today. Servant number two, you're released from debt. But quite the opposite happens, doesn't it? What's scene two of the parable? Having been released from this massive debt, Servant number two owes servant one a much more modest sum of money, right? It's much more reasonable. Servant one, though, demands payment. Not only does he demand payment, but he chokes the servant. He wrings his neck, pay me. And the servant number two begs for mercy in almost the exact same language as servant one. He makes the same plea. But servant number one doesn't hear servant number two, and he throws him in debtor's prison where he'll rot until people can gather up enough money to pay off his debt. In other words, servant number one has received life from the king or the master. And he turns around and doesn't extend that life. He thinks that he will receive more life by acting in a decisively different way. What in the world is happening in the heart of servant number one? We have to notice several things. For servant number one to be able to turn around and not extend the same forgiveness to servant number two, which is something we do all the time. We boast in our forgiveness in Christ, and we turn around and we do not extend that forgiveness to others who have wounded us. And so what has to be true of our heart, what's true of servant number one's heart in this motion, right? Number one, he ignores the values and ethics of the king. He says, I don't need to live by the ethics of the king, even though I've just benefited from them. I'm going to live by my own ethics. I can make my life better than the king can make it. So even though this is the way I've received life, I'm going to pursue more life, not through a holy way that brings happiness, to draw on the children's lesson, but through a sinful way that ultimately will bring more misery. He has to think that he's better than the second servant. If servant number one has received mercy and he turns around and doesn't extend that mercy, there must be reasons he must conclude that servant number two does not deserve the same mercy that he just received. So he's better than servant number two. He's really better than the king because he thinks he knows better how to engage life. And notice how he dehumanizes servant number two. Right? What do you have to think of a person to choke them? What do you have to think of a person to throw them into prison? You have to think that they're less than human. And the dehumanizing them makes it easier to treat them that way. They're worse. They deserve worse. I'm justified in what I'm doing because I'm better. It's a story of self-righteousness. Right? It's, 
It's the story of Lamech. I was reading a harrowing story of uh, a man named Bjorn who was on uh, the island off the coast of Oslo in Norway in 2011 when uh, a man named uh, Brevik, I forget his first name, Brevik was the shooter in 2011 on this island. And his tale of, of being on the island, and that day uh, Brevik would set off a bomb in Oslo, which took the lives of eight individuals and injured over 200. And then he proceeded to this island, which was a summer camp for children of, of the Labor Party. And they were having a camp, and Brevik comes onto the island and begins uh, a, a mass shooting. And 69 people would die. Uh, over 100 would be injured on the island. And Bjorn tells a story of running around the island and trying to find safety and hiding with people why this person was on the loose. And it's, it's too intense to actually tell this morning. Eventually, it, it comes down. Bjorn goes through counseling. He begins to think deeply about what has happened. And he eventually, against the advice of his counselor, he goes to the trial. He wants to see Brevik. And he had the most interesting observation. This is what he wrote of his experience. Listen, listen close and think, how, how did the people of Norway process what had happened, this massive tragedy? I believe that we have to recognize Brevik's humanity. I find people's efforts to dehumanize him really scary because that's what he tried to do to us. At times, people have refused to say his name, which makes him almost half-godly. This reminds me of the Harry Potter novels, where the name Lord Voldemort is so feared. A name should never have that kind of power. Norwegians try to dehumanize Brevik by calling him a monster or evil. And leading up to the trial, there was public pressure to see him as insane. The assumption being that Utoya was caused, uh, I'm sorry, that's the name of the island, that the island was caused by one single madman, almost like a natural disaster. It was as if they were trying to write it off, but there's a great danger in that, as we need to recognize that these things may happen again. What's Bjorn saying? They're saying, look, there's a great danger. The way Norway is processing this is basically they can't handle the evil that has struck them. And so they're coming up for ways not to actually deal with evil as part of the human condition and face it. Uh, he's an anomaly. He's crazy. He's insane. He's a monster. We're not going to say his name. And by doing this, we distance ourselves from it, and it can't happen again. Rather than actually going into the pain of the event and realizing that evil is a real thing, that evil can happen and it will happen again. But do you see this protective mechanism? Because we engage in it all the time. You see, by pretending to forgive and not actually forgiving, right, what are we doing? In part, we're telling ourselves that we have done what is necessary, but we're keeping the actual pain of what has occurred at arm's length, right? because we don't actually have to run to Jesus to do business with him. Right? Now, that sounds, I know, a little bit abstract, a little bit out there. Right? So let's talk about what that actually means, what forgiveness actually looks like. Let me say briefly, forgiveness is very tricky because it's something that's so highly dependent on the situation and the conditions of the situation. But in general, let me make a few statements. What is forgiveness not? Forgiveness is not that there are no consequences. Right? That's not love. 
Love has that there are consequences to our actions, and that's not, the release from consequences isn't what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is also not that you're going to be best friends, that you've been hurt or wounded by a person and you think, oh, if I forgive this person, what forgiveness looks like is that we're going to be really close and intimate. Not necessarily. That may never happen. It might have been a bad idea to begin with. Number three, forgiveness is not uh, that your pain is going to be gone. You might think, oh, if I've really forgiven someone, I don't feel hurt anymore for what I've experienced. No. You may feel the hurt and the pain for your entire life. Forgiveness is not those things. But what forgiveness is, is a giving up and a relinquishment of anger and the feeling of a right to exact justice or vengeance. In other words, I have the right to hate this person because they have wounded me or someone I love. I have the right to, uh, to extract from this person a pound of flesh to make me feel better. That's not your right or your privilege. It wasn't Lomax. And to the degree that you commit to it is to the degree that you move away from Christ and will only experience pain and suffering. So what does this look like? When I was in New York, um, there was a couple, Chip and Amy. They came to the city, and Chip was, like so many coming to Manhattan for financial industries, was a stockbroker. And sadly, there is the wives of stockbrokers, or those in the financial industry in New York City, are called the widows of Wall Street. Why? Because if you're going to work on Wall Street, you're, a light week for you is 70 hours. Right? You come home after your wife is asleep. You leave before she's up. And she makes her own life, her own social world in the city while you spend two or three years um, being the grunt and earning your stripes in the city. So um, what is not uncommon happened to Chip and Amy. Uh, Amy began to make friends and began to make her own social circle. And Chip was never at home. And it was only a matter of time before Amy had an affair. As the girls remember, an affair is when a, uh, a married person shares kisses with somebody else who's not the married person. Right? It's something that God does not approve of, and it's not good for us. It's something that sometimes we think will bring happiness, but doesn't. It brings misery. This is what happened to Chip and Amy. So Chip and Amy had grown up in a Christian household, and now they were going to deal with what had entered their house. And Chip said, well, I will forgive Amy, and we will go to counseling, and we will work on this. And they engaged that and went down that road. And they felt like they were spending more time together and things were a little bit better. But um, over time, what happened was that uh, Chip was incredibly critical. Chip, under the surface, was always angry. He was always turning the screws to Amy, no matter what was going on. Now, why? Because Chip, though he had the best of intentions and wanted to express that he would be faithful to this code, said simply, um, yes, I forgive you. Let's move on and work on this. Right? Now, that doesn't happen in a moment. Right? Don't hear me wrong. That's not my point in this story. My point in this story is that Chip said the words and believed that he forgave Amy, and he didn't come anywhere close. Because over and over, even subconsciously, he was punishing Amy for what had occurred. The anger and the hatred ran through him, and he believed that he was well entitled to extract a pound of flesh from her. And if they didn't actually come into the church and get help, what would have happened? Right? The clock was ticking until Amy had an affair. I mean, sorry. The clock was ticking until Chip would have an affair. 
because Chip is angry and hates Amy and doesn't feel loved by her. This has never been healed, nor has the pain ever been dealt with. And he would go down that road, and they would both move farther and farther apart. So a couple of years down the road, the marriage is actually in a worse place than it was when the affair actually occurred. And what Chip had to realize was he was taking responsibility for the vengeance, for extracting what he thought was justice in the midst of this relationship. I hadn't really forgiven him. But here's the point about Bjorn. In, in this sense, what Chip is doing is dehumanizing his wife. He's dehumanizing Amy. He says, she doesn't deserve my love because she hasn't acted in a way that honors God. And in doing that, Chip has also prevented himself from having to go to God, to go to Christ and say, this hurts in, in ways that I cannot even describe. And I am so angry at you for permitting this to happen. Right? Jesus, why, would you, why did you let this story unfold the way that you did? I am angry. I, am, I, am so, I have so much hatred for you. And in that, that moment is when Chip started to heal. Because Jesus, meeting Jesus, and this is, the, this is the mystical, beautiful aspect of our faith, that when we fall down at the cross and recognize that we are the ones that hung him there, and Jesus looks down and says, I forgive you, now Chip is equipped to actually forgive Amy. Do you see that? It's only when Chip recognizes his debt and recognizes the forgiveness he's received in Christ that Christ meets him there and actually equips him to extend forgiveness that he never had the power to begin with to extend. Right? None of us can forgive. Not in the way that this parable describes. Unless we're unified to Christ and the Spirit is empowering us to do so in a way that honors Christ. That he actually is behind. And the only way he can be behind it is if you run to him. But if you pretend that you can handle forgiveness, then you're not going to run to him. And if you don't run to him, then you never have the power to see it out. Right? And you exist in this horrible place. And, you know, you hear all these, all these cliches about forgiveness, right? For, uh, if you don't forgive, it's like drinking a little bit of poison each day. Right? Great. Why? Okay, you've come up with a really clever metaphor to describe what's going on. Now tell me why that's what it's like. I'll tell you why. Because when you live in that place, everything you're doing tells a story that's different than the gospel. Everything that communicates to your own heart and to the people around you is a story that is absolutely opposite to the gospel. And that is a terrible place to live. If you say with, out of one side of your mouth, I believe I receive life and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, and out of the other side of your mouth, you're not actually receiving that forgiveness nor distributing it, you live in a horrible place and you're miserable and you know it. And so what do you do? You have to run to Jesus and you have to say, I'm angry. And you know what? He's big enough to hear, I hate you. I can't believe you let this happen. And if you're going to do something here, you need to do it. Because I have so much anger and so much hurt and so much pain, I don't know how to get around it. And that's where he'll meet you. And that's where he'll start to do business in your heart. And it's in that moment that you stop telling a very old and a very tired and a very sad story, which is the story of Lamech. And where you start telling a very beautiful story, which is the story of Christ and his cross and his resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you and thank you for the forgiveness that you have rendered unto us. 
we ask that you would, would let us feel that in a way this morning that touches our hearts deeply. We've all uh, experienced different levels of pain and hurt, and for those who have experienced the most, I pray particularly for them. And I pray only that you would help them to move towards you, that they would lay it down at you and they would uh, be honest with you, and they would be reminded of their debt and their forgiveness and be reminded of the freedom, the release that you offer. For no pound of flesh that we extract will ever bring peace. Instead, help us to give vengeance unto you and to participate in the forgiveness that you have offered to us. We ask for your grace in this, in Christ's name. Amen.